the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffled Podcast, episode 98. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Hey, Sandra. Good morning. How are you, my friend? I am awesome. Still. Still going with the awesome and amazing. I love it. My, my, um, my botany professor, we're supposed to do um, labs every week and do a discussion around them online. And, you know, because I'm the gold star seeker that um, wants all the accolades. Uh, he called me out in online last week saying, I would like to um, c- uh, commend five people in class. And then he named us. And I was like, what's he going to commend it? Because I don't know what I'm doing in there, Sandra. It's like another language. I do not get it. And he was like, um, these, these people wrote, you know, uh, more than this lab was awesome. <laughs> you have to have a discussion. So you have to talk about the lab and like what you did. He was like, I'm not accepting this lab was awesome. The leads were awesome. He's <laughs> like, that is not acceptable for a lot. That's funny. So, even I would know not right? to do that, even though I think most things are awesome. Yeah, right. is, that's hilarious. Right. But I was, I do too. But I was, I was like, oh, that's what I'm getting. Okay, well, I'll take it. I need to take it because I got nothing else going on in that class, Sandra. It's, it's very challenging. So as long as I don't say I'm awesome in botany, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. Uh <laughs> But um, since um, we've been talking about the weather at the beginning of our podcast, I wanted to share with you something fun. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it did snow last week for sure here. And I think it snowed where you were, right? It was something that we like to call a wintry mix. <laughs> and, and my feelings about this are always a wintry mix. But uh, yeah, so a wintry mix, what that looks like is it's not quite a snowflake and it's not quite sleet. It's mm. kind of some sort of substance that's in between. A wintry mix. I like that. Yeah, I know. Really, it applies for lots, lots of, it applies <laughs> lots of things I've found. <laughs> in the winter time. I feel like a wintry mix. Yeah, that, that's a great, right? that's good. That's really good. Oh, well, it is raining buckets here. When I texted you this morning about it raining cats and dogs, I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm 92 when I say that because that's what just older people used to always say when I was growing up. It's raining like cats and dogs. But it was. It rained all night. And I have um, I have three of my geographic paintings. Um, one hung in the house and two are in my studio. And one is at the back of the garage. Oh. And when I woke up in the middle of the night and it was just pouring, I was like, sometimes the garage floods. Oh no. And so I just went out Did there to go. Did you run out there in the middle of the night? No, I should have though. Um, I just ran out there to get the mic for the show and to record with you. And because it was raining so hard, I just didn't want to go out there right when I woke up because it was dark and cold and rainy, but it let up a little bit and I walked in the garage and all I see is water and I'm like, oh God, 
oh God. And I went to the back of the garage that I had recently cleaned up because of the January cure. So I was very happy with myself. Everything's in plastic buckets back there. But when I get sloppy, you know, I throw clothes to go to the thrift store on the ground. I throw, I throw everything back there. It's like my catch all. Mm -hmm. And, um, none of that was, none of that was there because I had done the January cure and cleaned it all out and donated. All that was back there on a drop cloth was this beautiful landscape painting. And because the drop cloth was folded over, like, uh, I don't know, like, I can't explain it, but like, it had like 16 layers basically. Cause I'd folded this big drop cloth. It was really thick because I'd had it on this drop cloth. It did not get wet. Oh, wow. I caught it just in time because it was the whole drop cloth was wet and it was coming up to that top layer. And so I removed the painting off of it and moved it somewhere safe. And I was like, okay, uh, you need oh to hang gosh. your paintings, Tammy. That's, that was part of my January <laughs> cure was to paint, to hang some art in my house of my own. And, um, that just, that just, uh, reminded me that I need to do that. So Oof. saved it. <laughs> so I'm very happy about that. Um, good news. What have you been doing this week? I I think you've been making some awesomeness. So I want to, I want to talk. Oh, I have been sewing like crazy. So I have finished up some amazing kimonos. And by the time this airs, they absolutely will be in my marketplace. I said, I think in last week's intro, possibly I've said it. They got to just keep on the internet. I know, but here's, here's my excuse. So it's been very dark and cloudy and rainy here as well. And I cannot take a good photo under those kind of conditions. And so to get them all listed in my marketplace is kind of an event. Like I get the big camera out and then I, you know, and then I take it through my photo editing process and before I get them listed, I have to measure things. You know, it's a, it's kind oh, yeah. of, it takes time to get things up. I like to wait um, when I can batch a few at once. Yeah. And kind of, I don't streamline a lot of things, but that is one thing I've learned to do. It's, it's a big waste of time if I'm doing one at a time. Anyway, it's been yeah. dark. Now the sun's out. So they are getting photographed today and put up. So yeah, I have been sewing. They're gorgeous. Thank you. Oh my God. I'm so, I have more to make. I just, I saw that one that you showed the back of with the purple and the with the dragon. dragon. And I'm like, yeah, Florence it's, needs to own that from Florence. It's amazing. She, You're she right. She really does. <laughs> I, I need that. to get, I, yeah, some, mm-hmm. some kind of rock star needs to wear one mm-hmm. because they are. Well, anybody could be a rock star in one of yours. So true. True. Yeah. But they are dramatic. Yes. They are not for. You know, I say they weren't, they aren't really for the wallflower um, or, you know, or for the minimalist or the person who only wears black. <laughs> right. Yeah, they're so cool. Well, I've been doing this um, style school for the last five weeks. I haven't talked about it much because it's a lot about body image and acceptance and body shaming. And there's just a lot of that. And I kind of, I have some of that that I don't talk about publicly and here I go. But anyhow, taking figure drawing and seeing a, a live nude model six hours a week and taking style school has been really interesting, Sandra. A lot of revelations, a mm. lot of self-acceptance, a lot of different way for me to look at myself and accept myself, which has been really beautiful. But Monday, we were encouraged to um, 
you know, there's, there's different themes and prompts of how you dress for the day. And I didn't leave the house Monday. I was in all black, black leggings, black yoga shirt. And we got some fun news on Monday and I got excited and I was like, I'm going to go put on Sandra's kimono right now. And I am just going to wear it for the rest of the day because today is Monday and I am not leaving the house and my hair is in a ponytail and I'm going to put on my kimono. So I wore it all afternoon. And so I had to submit photos for the day of what I wore. And so I put it, I put my arms out and took photographs of the front and of the back of it. And I put it in the style school, um, Facebook group. The women went mad. Really? (laughs) They went insane. They, well, of course they did. Of course they did. And so I linked, I shared your, your website with them. And, um, I just told them how it makes me feel when I put that on, because when I, prior to uh, quitting drinking, you know, I wore black, gray denim. That's you didn't want to be seen. I did not want to be seen. And slowly over the course of four years, I mean, I love hot pink. That's the color that helped me kind of come out. That's why I use it in so many things. It has a, evokes a strong feeling. And my kimono has a lot of hot pink in it. And I mm-hmm. love it so much. And um, so, yeah, I wanted to tell you that, that I shared it yeah. and that they went bananas and I will be happy to share. I can share links um, to other things with them later on. So I will definitely share some of your new stuff with them. I love yeah. that. Thank you for telling me that. You yeah. know, that is that is definitely something that drives me into making these because I've said it before. I'll say it again. It's a total labor, labor of love. I love yeah. doing it. And then I love the I love that. I love the stories afterwards. I love the validation. I, I love the whole thing. So thank you for telling me because yeah. um, it's uh yeah, I love making them. Well, wearing one just yet, yeah, even when we were at your women's circle in Austin and just having them on that rack and even just to slip one on, just to try one on, you know what I mean? Even for that minute, if more women could try on your kimonos, I know that you would sell every single one <laughs> because as soon as you slip it on, it's almost like this, um, well, you feel royal. You feel just lovely. You feel uh-huh. And they are, and they're silky and they're, yeah, they're, uh, yeah, the, they feel good to, if you're a tactile person, they feel yeah. good to the touch too. Really good. Well, good. So those are going to be in your marketplace by the time this airs. Yes. And people can just check out Certainly. your marketplace anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I drop in anytime because uh, I usually try to post on Instagram when I'm adding things, but, um, but yeah, please check in any old time. Good. Um, I don't really have much to promote other than my yeah. groove, my groove class started and I'm super excited. And the ladies that are in there, um, several are unruffled listeners and they are just making and creating and riffing off of I, my words. Like I wanted, like I didn't really tell them they had to make anything in particular and they're doing it and sharing it under the hashtag groove with Tammy 2019 on Instagram. If anybody wants to check it out, the ladies oh, I are awesome. I look. Really, Every morning I'm delighted. I'm like, oh, what's going to be there today? I'm so excited. So I'll talk about that later in the month when I want to promote it again for next month. But I just, uh, I just wanted to share the hashtag because it's been really fun. Oh, that is fun. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, so should we talk about our, our guest for today? Let's do that. Let's do Let's that. <laughs> do that. So I'll start. Today yeah. we have on the podcast Jody White. And... Um, We'll tell you a little bit about Jody, and then I'll um, 
tell you how I met her, even though we talk about it actually in the interview. But Jody is a Texas native who moved away for 20 years to work in the publishing industry on both coasts. At 40 years old, she finally listened to her dharma and the advice of her teacher, Guru Singh, and returned to school in order to become a licensed therapist. Today, Jody has a private practice in Austin where she spe- specializes in addiction and trauma, specifically childhood wounding and love addiction. Yeah, Jody uses her personal experience with love addiction and sobriety to help others struggling with self-worth issues become reacquainted with the person they were born to be. Jody is also a certified life coach and a yoga teacher, and her therapist friends call her the Boundary Queen. <laughs> That's a great nickname. It really is. Um, if you want to learn more about Jody, she's at jodywhitelpc.com. And we have some links and stuff that she talked about on the show. Um, on her website, you can find them at jodywhitelpc.com, which I just shared. Her Instagram is jodywhitelpc. And um, she had a great new blog post uh, that she wrote about love addiction that um, you can find on there too. Right, right. On her blog, she's starting a new series where she's, she talks about it a lot on the podcast, but basically she rediscovered some old journals um, where she was really deep in her love addiction. And so she's having you know, kind of a moment going through all these old journals and she's blogging about them over on her site. And it's super interesting. Even if you, even if you, even if this isn't your thing or for me, like I didn't think it was my thing until I was reading about her descriptions and, and, and I started thinking about moments in my history where I did exhibit a lot of these, um, a lot of the characteristics of a love addict. And so it's, I know that many of us, if, you know, alcohol is our problem, we also have tandem things. Right, right. (laughs) And so this is prop, this could definitely be one for you guys. Um, But Jenny- yeah, go ahead. No, you're so lucky that she, okay, what's going on in Austin and, and, and the Texas area? Like every, all the cool ladies, what's going on? I know. You guys are I, all right there. We're kind of like, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of where it's at. I'm telling you. Uh, yeah. Jody and I actually just had coffee the other day. So I'm lucky I get to see Jody uh, mm-hmm. often because she lives here in Austin, but you guys come to Austin. Yeah. Jody and I'll have coffee with you. We talk about that. We, <laughs> <laughs> we love having coffee with strangers. <laughs> All right. That's it. I've got to get on airline and see what's going on when I'm coming to Austin. That's I say I don't have FOMO and then I'm like, I got to come have coffee with you. Um, so maybe I do. Uh, well, I, I loved our conversation. I love what I love that she shared what she shared on the show. I learned a lot too. Mm-hmm. I Same. I hope our listeners do too. Yep. You guys enjoy Jody. Good morning, Jody. Good morning. Good morning, Jody. Hi, Tammy. So you guys are both in Austin. Is that where I'm the one out? Of the you are the <laughs> yeah. outlier today. Um, the outlier today. You are. Well, Jody and I are both Austin girls. Yeah, Texas gals. You're on the phone, mm-hmm. Texas gals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I might throw in a y'all just to feel really bonded with you guys. <laughs> So I'm going to try that on for size. We'll see how it goes. Okay. All right. We're going to let you do that. Well, um, 
Jody, why don't you tell our listeners how we met? Because I really, I do the same thing um, that you did to me. I do it as well. So I uh, have been sober for one year and one month. And um, I started realizing, oh, look at all these really awesome people on Instagram that are sober, um, especially awesome women. And I think it was through Erin Shaw Street. Street? Mm-hmm. Yes. Her Instagram, I noticed, I already followed you, Sandra, I'm pretty sure. But then I looked at your bio and saw that you're in Austin. Oh, because you and Erin were in Austin hanging out. Right, right, right. Yeah. So you just reached, yeah, yeah. So you just reached out and said, yep. hey, let's have coffee. See, I love that. Mm-hmm. And Ladies, I don't know. I know it seems scary, but if you notice that there is someone else sober in your town, just do it. Reach yeah, out and totally. I, because I do it all the time. And sometimes I feel like, you know, the response is sort of <laughs> like, uh, um, okay. You know, yeah. I get radio silence as well. <laughs> I've had that happen too. I have reached out to a couple of people and haven't heard back. And, you know, it could be for various reasons. I think sure. possibly the message got filtered or possibly they hit a million of these, you know, and the thing I do is because I've worked in sales for 16 years before uh-huh. I became a therapist, so <laughs> putting myself out there isn't new. Right. Uh, you don't mind the cold call. <laughs> yeah. It's just, <laughs> If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. What's the worst that could happen, right? Exactly. Exactly. You have to detach your feelings from Mm -hmm. the situation. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we had coffee and I loved you and, um, and that's where it all began. Right. And since then you've met, like, you've kind of met the whole Austin girl gang, I think. (laughs) I, I feel very fortunate that it's just almost like as soon as I reached out to you, it just all started working. Everything started working together like it should, you know. Exactly, exactly. It's like the oil was on the joints or something all of a sudden. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you you hosted uh like a little happier hour the other night and yeah and most of most of the Austin ladies showed up. Um, mm-hmm. I think Jen was sick. Bummer. She, was. she but, said she um, had FOMO really bad. I, I'm sure I she her yesterday. Or <laughs> thing. But, but it was so fun. It was so fun. I, we stayed an hour longer than we all, (laughs) you know, meant to even. It was just really, that was, it was like a power hour. It was great. Yeah. And the first of, first of many, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I love it. Jody. that's how I met Sandra. I kind of stalked her a little bit. (laughs) Sandra, you're stalkable. You are very stalkable. And look where, look where we're at. Look where we're at yeah. now. Mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> well, isn't that awesome though, that you can see some, almost see someone's energy. Well, I was just you know, going to say, I'm glad I, I, I'm glad that, uh, tra- uh, transfuses through my energy transfuses. Did I just make that word up anyway through social? I like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like it too. I hope that I did make it up. Um, yeah, I like that, 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 you get that from me on social media. So like, yeah, all you weirdos, anybody just <laughs> reach out. I have good boundaries. So I will definitely, um, scroll right on past. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you, know. it, it, you just know, and, and, and it takes guts to reach out to somebody. And so it I, does. 
I do that as well. And I think it's how I found um, all my in real life people up here, you know, so, but I do come to Austin, Jody. So we will oh, be good. meeting, I am sure. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Very good. Great. For sure. I look forward to that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, Jody, why don't you tell us how you came to sobriety since this is a podcast about recovery and creativity? So, uh, my drinking, I, for the longest time, I thought, wow, I really have uh, a drinking problem. Um, combined with that was very, <laughs> a lot of, a string of really bad relationships um, that started way back in high school. Even before that, actually, my dysfunctional relationships started in grade school with picking friends who were abusive. So I, I my codependency <laughs> and love addiction really was, uh, it got off to a, an early start. But when I was in my 30s is when my drinking really got worse. I was living in New York City and working in the magazine publishing business and in and out of uh, co-addicted relationships and just very painful situations. And I would use alcohol to medicate that pain. Um, a few years ago, I finally met with a therapist here in Austin and I went in and I was going through a breakup and telling her I, I'm codependent and um, I think I have a drinking problem. And I explained to her what was going on and she looked right at me. Within 10 minutes of meeting her, she said, you're a love addict. And I mm -hmm. said, no, I don't know what that is, but that's not true. I'm codependent. I have a drinking problem. Love addiction sounds horrible. <laughs> don't, you, don't you love how we all can just really diagnose ourselves? Thank yes. You yes. And at that point, I was a licensed therapist, so I knew best for myself. Right. You know. um, but she said, no, no, no. And she broke it down for me, what love addiction is. And she described pretty much every relationship I'd ever been in. She said, I bet this is what happens. And she explained it to me. And I said, holy, yes. How did you know that? Um, she said, I bet anything, if we work on your love addiction, you're not going to want to drink the way that you have historically been drinking. And we worked on the love addiction and she was right. I didn't feel the need to self-medicate with alcohol, but I still had alcohol in my life. And so when I would drink, even though it wasn't daily and even though it wasn't necessarily two extremes, um, it was unpredictable. You know, I could have a glass or I might have a bottle. Um, and I would have that shame. Even with a glass of wine, I would feel shame around drinking. And I finally put together that this reminds me of all those years I that I stayed in these relationships, pain and shame. It just, it was too closely related to mm. that. And so I, I quit drinking because first of all, I could, you know, mm -hmm. and um, I'm turning 50 this year. And so last year I thought, you know, I don't want to turn 60 and still be feeling this way and still have something in my life because that I've, I can see, I know that happens because I work with clients as a therapist who struggle with addiction. And, um, you know, I've had clients come in in their 60s, 50s and say, I knew I had a problem in my 40s. I wish I would have quit then. And so I just said, you know what, 
I have to do this for myself. I have to quit drinking and get it out of my life. And it has been a game changer for me. Right. Cause you could just see your future right there. It's kind of through your oh, clients yeah. and, yeah. and yeah. And it seems so simple too, when you break it down that way, it's like, this is making me feel shame or guilt or misery. Why am I doing it? Yeah. Yeah. I kept saying, I'm a smart woman. Why am I doing something that's not good for me? But it's so ingrained. I mean, I started drinking when I was 14. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can't outthink it. That's for sure. You How can't rationalize you it. I'm, I'm turning 50 this year. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. I just want to make sure I knew that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She and I are both turning 50. I love year. it. Mm -hmm. It's exciting. It kind of is. It kind of <laughs> is exciting. I have to say, I honestly, I kind of dreaded 49. I will be honest a little more. Um, but, but turning 50s just seems like a big party mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. yeah. And to me, I was thinking about this a while back, but I was thinking about sobriety and how I look at sobriety. Um, it's almost like, you know, when you're in grade school and junior high and you look at the high schoolers and especially the seniors and you think, wow, they've got it, you know, like, right. I can't wait to be that. That's so cool. And then you get to be a senior in high school and it's just this feeling of I went through all that stuff and here I am and my whole life is ahead of me. Right. And that's how I look at sobriety. It's like, I feel like I'm a senior in high school again. I feel like my whole life is in front of me. It's like this, this awesome feeling of, I went through all that stuff and here I am. <laughs> yes. That is an amazing analogy. That's perfect. You're right. That's exactly what it feels like. And combined with, you know, getting older too, you're right. Mm -hmm. It just feels kind of like, wow, what's next? That's what it, exactly. I mean, because everything, it's like little doors, big doors, everything's opening up. And clarity is the word that always comes to mind for me. It's just, there's just clarity mm -hmm. and instead of moving forward in a cloud, you know, mm -hmm. um, there's just a, there's a light shining on everything now. Well, going back to the love addiction, can you give our listeners like a good definition of that and sort of like, tell us how you may know if that's your thing. So a simplified definition of love addiction is that it's an addiction to being loved. Um, so it really comes from, it's rooted in codependency. Right. Um, and codependency, a simplified definition of that is an addiction to being needed. So, mm. um, you know, if with love addiction, it's, uh, for me, it was a pattern of getting into relationships with avoidant partners, meaning the way it would come about for me is um, I would be doing just fine. <laughs> I would mm -hmm. be feeling strong. And then someone would come along who seemed like a, a great partner, come on really strong, say all the right things. I would stay really centered initially. And then as soon as I would say, okay, I'm gonna give this a go that avoidant partner would say, eh, never mind, and start behaving differently and not being as quote unquote into me. And it triggered my love addiction that something has happened. I've done something wrong because you, this person loved me. This person was into me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I did something wrong. So now I need to prove how lovable I am to keep this person interested in me. 
Mm. And it's an unconscious, it's a push pull. And, um, you know, you can, I can look back and see that that's what I was feeling is I did something wrong. This person loved me so much and now they're acting different and it can be so subtle. It can just be suddenly not calling back or texting back or not as available. And that feeling of I've done something wrong. I have to fix this. It's me. I'm, I'm damaged. I'm, I must not be good enough. That's really what it came down to is I'm not good enough anymore. Somehow this person has changed his mind. And, um, I would stay in this and constantly work so hard to try to fix it and eventually give up. You know, eventually I would in the relationship and 99% of the time the avoidant mm. will come back. That's, that's how it becomes pushful. They'll come back and it's usually when the addict is feeling better and feeling better. So they're a part of, uh-huh. of the, of the, they Essential part, I guess the the avoidant partner part is essential to uh, define. Yeah, addiction. now it was for me. Okay, as, I, as I've studied this, I'm realizing there are different types of love addicts and different types of codependents. Um, you can really whittle it down, and so for me, I can be avoidant, but the majority of the time, I'm the addict. Mm. Um, so, like when I historically when I would be with someone who was available, consistently available, I would feel so uncomfortable that I would become avoidant because intimacy is, was historically so uncomfortable for me. And that's really what it is. It's, you know, the, the love addict wants to feel loved. They're on this constant search for what's called unconditional positive regard, which is only it's what a child is supposed to get from their primary caregiver. Um, you know, a child should be launched into the world feeling okay with themselves, him or herself. It, and it just, the majority of the time doesn't happen that way. There are a lot of us walking around that didn't get unconditional positive regard on a consistent basis. Um, and it doesn't mean that you have to come from an abusive or neglectful household. Right, right. Your parents could be perfectly great, Mm -hmm. but still are going to need therapy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the terms that we use today a lot more often is the highly sensitive child, Mm -hmm. um, highly sensitive person. And so as a child, if you're highly sensitive, your perspective of something that might be completely okay um, could be uh, seen as um, damaging or something to the child. Oh, right. Because at that mm-hmm. point, sometimes no one can meet those needs. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's no cookie cutter way because I've had clients who come in and clearly are dealing with love addiction. And when I talk to them about it, and when I, I usually assign Pia Melody's book, uh, Facing Love Addiction, and they'll read it and say, no, 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 this isn't me because I had a great childhood and my mother was completely available. And it's like, it doesn't have, sometimes it's not so obvious, you know? Mm, Right. Um, If there was like maybe multiple siblings or something. mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. You know, maybe you're the older, you're the middle child or something. And then, you know, there's a baby comes along and, Mm -hmm. and the parents naturally, or at least the mom sometimes will naturally turn to obsess over the baby and, and then right. the middle child's left out. Yeah. Well, um, 
So to me, it seems like it's all rooted in some kind of outside validation. Yes. So it's a search for that outside. Tell me I'm okay so I can feel okay. Tell me I'm lovable so I feel loved. Um, and no matter what a, a partner says or does, the love addict, it's not enough. It's a gaping wound that cannot be filled up with something from the outside, you know, and mm -hmm. it's very painful. I mean, I can, I equate it, it's a feeling of rejection and abandonment, but it's, it's a deep, deep pain that almost feels like it's, I'm dying, you know, that's mm -hmm. all I can really, mm -hmm. um, how I can describe it as it feels like the end of the world. Right. When I think about love addiction and I'm not trying to be funny here, but when I think about it, I think about the movie fatal attraction and yes. you know, and that <laughs> yes. obsessive feeling That's and I've exactly. had, and I've had those feelings at times. I, I definitely have with different um, partners I've had, you know, since my teenage years, it's never been consistent, a consistent thing for me though. Mm -hmm. um, but I will definitely, I can definitely recall um, different instances where I acted crazy mm -hmm. um, because someone was not available to me. And, yeah. you know, often when I went off the rails, alcohol had something to do with it though, too. I was not, you know, I, I could no longer be discerning and my behavior would just completely spin out. Yeah. That's, I was the same way. In my most love addicted moments, you know, which were the most painful moments, if I fed that with alcohol, it was even worse. I mean, it was just, I felt crazy. You know? Right. I just felt like there is something wrong with me. Um, and I really felt like there was something wrong with my mental health. There must be something wrong with me. I'm crazy. Um, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, but um, I watched Fatal Attraction <laughs> again about six months ago and said, love addict right there. Right. Oh, for sure. Totally. And you know, now that I know so, I studied it so much and um, devoured all the information I can about it because it is just, uh, it helped me so much. And now I love working with people um, to help them with it too, but I can see it everywhere. Movies. I hear it in songs, you know, uh -huh. I hear these songs that I hear and go, they're talking about love addiction. You can't live without someone. That's what, that's what right. right there. Um, so this idea of romance, I think sometimes a lot of that, those romantic notions of I need you so much, you know, I can't live without you. That's not healthy love. So, mm -hmm. so what's the solution? I mean, in a nutshell, what's, well, I'm sorry, can I interject? Yeah, no, go ahead. Before you get to the solution, I was waiting for a time to ask this. I think it might be before the solution, but in, in your writing and things that I was reading, Jody, that you had written about love addiction, you talked about like it feeling like a hunger. Mm -hmm. And then you also likened it to a wound. Yes. And that some wounds are bigger and hungrier than others. Mm -hmm. And that the, those hungry wounds could lead to addiction. Yeah. So that's definitely kind of what you're talking about, what you and Sandra were just talking about. Like it's leading you there. It's, mm -hmm. it's um, you're feeding it, right? You're feeding that wound with alcohol. Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Right. And that's what, so, and my theory is that we all have a wound. I mean, we all, no one escapes the wound. The wound, okay. you know, we get wounded somewhere in life, even if it, if we somehow magically escape being wounded from our family of origin, there's a 
coach or a teacher or a, somebody, you know, that says something hurtful and there's a little wound. It's just our attachment style, um, our conditioning as to how we deal with that wound, right? Um, because some people are functioning just fine in, li fine in life. And then some wounds just get flared up and triggered. Um, they could even lie dormant until much later in life. You know, I've seen people, uh, when I was working inpatient, I saw people come in in their 50s and 60s and it, they didn't start drinking heavily until their 50s or 60s or even 70s um, when you know the loss of a partner or loss of a job or retirement or something that changed their idea of themselves you know um so yeah I, my theory is that we all have a wound yeah. mm. well you know when i hear you say this you see jody i am the queen of disassociation <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's good to be queen of something, Sandra, but I don't know. Yes, don't know. that is my realm, is disassociation, and I am the queen of it, and, you know, and, and that stems from childhood, because I had a father who was very abusive, and I, to cope, I escaped into my dream world, mm -hmm. um, and so when you say when you say wound, when you talk about the wound, I, I'll be honest, I have a hard time identifying with that a little bit because I, um, because I, I guess because of disassociation, you know, I, I'm just like wound. Okay. I guess I have a wound, but whatever. If I just don't look at it, it's not there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's, and you're not alone in that. When I talk about wounding with clients, it's hard for them, for a lot of people to understand, you know, for me, um, and a lot of love addicts that I have talked with, you can, I can feel it literally in my solar plexus. It is, or right in the middle of my chest. It's just this pain, um, like a, just a gaping, you know, void in there. Right. That, um, it's really painful. I think you, you used the words too, um, Jody, about hunger. Mm -hmm. You know, could, could that be like the void too? Like there's this thing we're needing to feed? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, maybe like not a, wound, Sandra, maybe a hunger or a mm -hmm. longing, a deep, mm -hmm. deep longing. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, definitely there's, you know, definitely there are times when I feel like there's this insatiable hole that I can't fill with, you know, I'll go from thing to thing now. And, you know, it used to be alcohol that would, that I would use to fill that and, and you know, sometimes yeah, now it's anymore. right. Sometimes now it's, uh, I don't know, almond butter or whatever. <laughs> Chocolate yeah. for me. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah or all, all just kind of indulging in all these other things that we still, um, have our addic addictive behaviors with. Right. Busyness. That's one. Oh, for me. yes. It's more seriously. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely, definitely busyness. Yes. I'm a big, well, I'm an, I'm a three on the Enneagram, so I'm an achiever, <laughs> and uh, it's just, I'm really big on to-do lists and doing all the things on that list and then having more, and so that's a, that's my thing that I'm working on now is just being okay with being, you mm -hmm. know, um, being still, because I think that this busyness was a part of my life, you know, even growing up, I was very much an achiever. It was, you know, do all the things so that I can be loved and be, you know, valuable. And so that's, it's a constant, I'm a work in progress for sure. 
Mm. Yeah. That resonates with me for sure. I'm a two, three. I thought I was a three, two, but I, I took it the other day. I'm a two, three. Maybe I'm changing. I don't know. Um, yeah. But that resonates with me of just trying to uh, get it all done because if there's this imaginary gold star at the end yes. um, that I'm going to get awarded. And if not imaginary, I buy gold stars and keep them in my desk drawer now because I need them. Yeah. <laughs> but now I give them to myself. I don't wait. I'm trying not to let others have to give me those gold stars. So I really, it's like a visual reminder when I open my desk drawer that like I can give them to myself. Like I had a great day. Well, that's a healthier way I think of, of dealing with that. That's my shift. That's what I've been trying to do for the last three or four years is just that, that the gold star is for me, but I forget, you know, cause I have a good forgetter. And, but when I open my desk drawer, I'm reminded when I'm working in the morning and setting about the day and I understand this list making and this achieving um, that's another insatiable hole, trying to fill mm-hmm. it up, hoping that you're going to get this outside validation. So that that part of it resonates with me for sure, Jody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Okay. So let's then talk about what is the solution that you suggest, like maybe to your clients or something, some things that you've done yourself to address love addiction? So it's a lot of self-worth work. Um, it's breaking down and it depends on where, let's just say, let's all talk about my experience, how I worked on this. Um, because everyone's different. It depends on what, where they are in their life and are they in a a relationship currently and are they just getting out of one? But the therapist that I worked with a few years ago, um, I had been in a string of relationships with avoidance that lasted a couple of months. Um, and had just gotten into a relationship with someone who was currently my partner. So I feel very fortunate that I was able to work on this with him, but he was showing signs of avoidance and it triggered me. And because of, you know, I was just right there ready with the wound. I, my reaction was really over the top. Um, and it just shifted the dynamic in our relationship. And um, when I went to my therapist and she said, you know, the best, what I want to see you do is take 90 days away from this relationship. And I want to work on this with you without the interference of the relationship. And so I took 90 days, no contact from my partner. And it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because I was feeling addicted to him. So it, it was setting that boundary that I had to do it for myself. I think that was probably the hardest part is that the reason I'm doing this is for me, not for the relationship, you know, <clears throat> because I was so used to doing everything for the relationship in, in my life. It was all about whatever I did. It was for the relationship, you know, so that the relationship would be healthy or good or feel good or look good or um, so that I would feel loved. And, to take that time for myself and have zero contact um, uh, was was the most important part of the healing that I did. And that is also what I recommend to clients is that you take 90 days away from it um, to really work on yourself. And so in that time, I worked on inner child um, work, which was going back and basically reparenting mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going over a, 
my therapist and I did a long list of traumas in my life, you know, even perceived traumas, things that I remember from childhood that weren't necessarily about family of origin, even they were things that happened at school, um, then things that happened in my teens, things that happened in my 20s, just things that I, and they really what they were, were things that were traumatic to me and were attached to shame because shame's a big part of this. And don't you remember those like a snapshot, like yeah. so clearly a snapshot in your brain? I mean, just you saying that brought up when, can I tell about, can I talk about one of those for me real quick? It has nothing yeah. to do with my parents. Yeah, I was course. in fifth grade mm -hmm. and it was St. Patrick's Day and I had forgotten but I was so proud of my outfit that day. I wore this like ridiculous floor length um, handmade dress, <laughs> it was a, like pastel blue lace that someone had made me because I, uh, I was a flower girl in a wedding. <laughs> and it was uh, just... I mean, taffeta underneath. I don't know. I was so excited about wearing this dress to school, though, but had completely forgotten it was St. Patrick's Day. Of course, my mom never remembered about stuff like that. Not her fault. She was busy. Um, so I got to school, and I my teacher pinned a, uh, a, a clover onto my chest. So, you know, here you go. You forgot that it was St. Patrick's Day. Here's a clover. She, she pinned a little paper clover. She pinned to my chest um, so that, you know, I wouldn't get pinched. And I must have actually been in fourth grade because some kids, I was coming out to go to recess and some older kids came behind me and came out really fast and pinched me so hard and like yelled something and I think just making fun of me and my outfits. <laughs> and I remember feeling so shameful, like the tears just immediately poured out. And it wasn't just, you know, that the pinch hurt because it did kind of hurt, but you know, just the shame and humiliation around the whole thing. I will never forget that. <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that. That's exactly yeah. what goes on the list. Uh-huh. I mean, it is yeah. like a snapshot as clear as like a Polaroid snapshot in my brain. Mm -hmm. We know, you, you know what that brought up for me, Sandra, is that I was the first thing I thought when you said that teacher pinned that on you, I was like, that's going to ruin her outfit. Like <laughs> 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 kind of ruin what she's going for here. Paper clip, paper, clothes. Well, she was jeans. looking like, out. Not, not I know <laughs> she was looking out for me though, but I, yeah, I still got pinched and oh, mm -hmm. Awful. It's awful. Yes. <laughs> hey, Unruffled listeners. Just popping in mid-show to remind you about our Patreon fundraising campaign. To date, we have produced over a year's worth of content and have over a quarter million downloads. We can hardly believe it. If you like what you've been hearing, you can be a patron of this show for as much as you'd like, even if it's just a dollar an episode. To donate, please go to www.patreon.com backslash the unruffled podcast. Thank you for your continued support of the show. Now back to it. Well, we were talking about, you know, the achiever and how busyness and how that probably started early in life. And um, me as an, the achiever was, 
I need to do all the things. I need to be the cheerleader. I need to be the straight A student. I need to be um, doing all the stuff. And I fourth grade, fifth grade, this one of my memories that was on my list of things um, of shame items was when I was in fifth grade, I was voted to be the lead in the school play, which was called The Beautiful Princess. And so I was the beautiful princess and um, I was, I no was pressure so excited. There. No pressure there. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But <laughs> it was supposedly the class voted for me, but I believe that the teacher just assigned it to me. And I was excited for about 30 seconds until in my memory, all of my girlfriends stopped speaking to me. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> because they were mad at me that I got- you were the beautiful you know, princess. I was the beautiful <laughs> princess and Jody thinks she's so special and la la la. And so early memories of, it's like, don't be too big and shiny because oh, there's right. be And so I learned early on, whenever I got something or something exciting happened, I would downplay it all the time because I have memories of girlfriends, friends, best friends, just disconnect from me when something like that would happen mm. and so that was on my list of things is that I did something wrong because I was chosen to be the lead in this play that my belief was that I did something wrong you know mm -hmm. so and that's what a lot of the shame is and that is the definition of shame you know as Brene Brown says the belief is that there's something wrong with me I'm right you know, it's so, not your actions or mm -hmm. yeah there's something inherently wrong right and so that's, that was on, it was one of the items on my long list of things that I had, like you said, snapshots of that I associate with this really yucky feeling, um, like your, like your St. Patrick's Day memory. Right. So, yeah. Right. And <sighs> they add up, those things add up and, you know, you can look at them as an adult and say, wow, why was that such a big deal? <laughs> but when you're a kid, and especially when you're a small child, you know, you're, you're egocentric, you're supposed to be egocentric. Um, so everything is about you. And if someone is responding negatively towards you, then the belief is, it's because there's something wrong with me. Or, you know, I've caused this issue somehow. Mm -hmm. And I can see how this work would be powerful. Because, you know, for instance, my example, you know, if I, if I, if I kneel down and talk to that little girl that got pinched, I would tell her there, you didn't do anything wrong. You wore a fabulous dress. Who It was St. Patrick's Day. You forgot. Oh, well, you didn't, it, you didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Uh, if it was Chloe, if it was your daughter, you right. would, that's exactly what you would say to Chloe. Yeah. yeah. And some of us don't have you know, let's say that, let's say, let's use your, your example, Sandra, you know, some of us handle those situations so differently, like some would internalize that and not share feelings with anybody, um, just carry on. And then some might go home to an environment uh, which doesn't nurture vulnerability and be met with, you know, uh, feedback that's negative. Or so we all learn differently you know to how we handle that you know how to cope yeah yeah so 
I'm not sure if you felt safe going home and saying this is what happened today and if you were met with it's not you it's them you know because that's really important it's not about you to learn that at an early age this is not about you this is about them because that's something that children um you know even adults <laughs> sometimes I tell do. my kids <laughs> that all the time yeah. I really do and I mean and it's not like I've always told them that since birth but it's definitely something that I've learned just, you know, working through recovery is yes, what other people think about you is none of your business. It is not you. It is them. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. 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 And I have a lot of things I wish, you know, even as an adult, I'd look back and think, gosh, I wish I could have really believed that or just been able to walk away from a situation and said, this isn't good for me. <laughs> that person has something wrong with them that they need to work on. But my tendency was always to stay in friendships and relationships way too long and at my own detriment, you know, mm, right? Um, to try to make something work or to, you know, be the fixer or be valuable or um, a lot of time spent in dysfunctional relationships. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Same, same. And it's interesting. Um, Sandra and I talk about this a little bit about this coming into midlife is when all of these things feel um, like there's some illumination to them, mm -hmm. right? That I want to work on these things, that I don't want to feel this way anymore, um, that I want to honor myself. I want to quit um, beating myself up. I think that's what drove me to quit drinking was just, I was so as Sandra says, and I hear in the rooms, like we're you know, sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yes. And that feeling was just like the, the, the jig is up. Like I've got to work on some of this stuff um, that has been buried that I didn't even know I needed to work on, right? Like exactly what you're talking about. Um, childhood traumas with big T's and little mm -hmm. T's, like they're, they're the, they've, made, they've made me who I am in a way, you know, they're right. part of me. Right. It's mm -hmm. not all of me, but it is, that's part of me. And to know that you can go back and address that stuff so that you don't have to keep, you know, we're talking about you guys turning 50 this year. I'm turning 49 this year. Like, I don't want to keep carrying this. Mm -hmm. it's, too, it's too heavy, you know? So I appreciate you talking about this. This is fascinating. Are, um, if y'all are familiar with EMDR, are you? I am familiar with EMDR. A little bit, yeah. It's fascinating. So it's a, it's a type of therapy that there are several tools you can use, um, but it basically, it stands for eye movement desensitization dysregulation. <laughs> and so basically um, it's bilateral stimulation of the brain and mm -hmm. um, it helps clear out emotional debris left over from these childhood um, or early adult or even things from last year, situations that happened that we never processed. And so that's also, Sandra, going back to your answer, uh, your question about what's the solution. So, you know, through the reparenting and through the inner child work and listing these events to go through. And what we do is, what I do with a client is pick a few um, that are on a scale of one to 10, what's the intensity, you know? Um, and we start processing through those and clear out emotional debris. Um, so that's really helpful in the um, just clearing out stuff that these old beliefs really, because mm -hmm. what I'll have clients do is what are the messages attached to each event? Like what are your internal messages? And they all come back to, I'm not good enough. I mean, that's the, 
that is the most common message and pretty much any negative message about self can go back to I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. um, and so to clear that out and then start reframing these incidents, um, it's really also about changing the way that we, re we, we think about these ourselves in these situations, right? And so it's by processing everything out, addressing the negative messages and then replacing those with positive messages. Mm. Um, hopefully leads to, you know, a practice of making healthier choices. Right. Um, self-worth, you know, rebuilding mm -hmm. self-worth and um, loving yourself. That's really right. what I, I call it. What I call it is living internally because mm -hmm. as a love addict, I spent so much time living externally and it's my hula hoop. That's what I call it. My hula hoop and everything inside my hula hoop is mine. It's my values, my beliefs, my, my thoughts, my actions, my motives. That's all my stuff. Nobody else's stuff is in my hula hoop and everybody else has a hula hoop too. And as long as we're all living in our hula hoops, we could probably all be pretty healthy. <laughs> right. But we, you know, I lived trying to get in other people's hula hoop and, you know, trying to prove myself. Let me show you how much you need me. Let me show you how lovable I am. And when you're living in someone else's hula hoop or when you're not paying attention to your own, you're just wobbly. You're not sturdy. You're not standing on your foundation. Um, and you can't thrive like that. And so that's what a lot of it is. I call it the hula hoop method really is getting in touch with who you are. Um, what are your values? You know, what are your beliefs? Um, you know, who are you really? Who are you separate from what you want other people to think you are? Right, right, right. If you take away all of your titles, mm -hmm. then who are you? Yeah. Um, because we all have this amazing stuff. We do. It's all inside there. We just either never knew about it or we've forgotten about it. So it's just getting reacquainted with who you are today, you know, because a lot of what I found is I was still living um, like the 16 year old that my dad wanted me to be probably, you know, yeah. because I was daddy's little girl and the apple of his eye. And, um, I found myself behaving like a little girl in a lot of situations. And so it's now being the adult that I want to be, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The, um, I've been doing some work. And so it's interesting. I wanted to just back up a, a tiny bit to what you were saying about EMDR. And I know that you are a therapist. It's interesting in recovery to me, um, like the slow progression of things I'm willing to open myself up to try, mm -hmm. you know? So I initially uh, just stopped drinking and tried to hike it out, you know, and be and adjust my diet. And then eventually I found the rooms and did the 12 steps. And then eventually, you know, you just keep adding on things and trying new things. Mm -hmm. And so EMDR has been there the whole time um, that I've, um, Holly from Hip Sobriety recommended EMDR to me. I don't know three and a half years ago. Have I done it? No. Um, so it's like, I'm aware of these things, but it's gotta be about what you're willing to yes. do as well. Like, you have to be ready. Um, you can be willing all you want, but you have to kind of be ready for it. And so I'm interested just, um, I know I didn't ask you this at the top of the show, but you being a therapist and, um, you know, your path 
did you try the rooms at all or did you um did you go into other methods and modalities that were more familiar to you like emdr or understanding that that might help yes i i did go to aa when i lived in new york and i did my um residency in Dallas. So I was in Dallas for a couple of years and I went to a couple of AA meetings in Dallas. And at the time it didn't resonate with me. Um, so I have not been in the rooms since I've been sober. It, I would like to work the steps. That is something that um, I have a, an interest in doing. But therapy, because I had done so much therapy, um, I started in my twenties and therapy always worked for yeah. me um that yeah therapy was my go-to therapy about, and journaling I, journaling was big and what was I'm sorry. journaling oh journaling yeah well i wonder because that's in your wheelhouse so i was just curious yeah. i thought i would ask because that would be where you would go i would think is to, yeah. is to go there um which i, I was gonna um I see Sandra has a, a question. I was going to kind of uh, hope this is okay to ask it, Sandra. Yeah, go ahead. But, um, we know that you have a connection to Guru Singh, and yes. we wondered if you could tell us more about that and maybe share with our listeners. I just finished listening to him this morning, and I get his emails every day, and I think he is so wise. I wish I could take a class from him in person. Like, yes, he, he is one of my teachers for sure. And so I wanted to ask, you know, as well, what your connection was with him. Mm-hmm. So I lived in Los Angeles. Um, in the 90s. I was there for about seven years before I moved to New York City. And I was fortunate enough to live next door to a really amazing friend um, who I had gone to a yoga class at Yoga Works. I'd been to one yoga class. (laughs) And and I thought, huh, this isn't, I don't know, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And this was about, this was 20 years ago. Um, And my neighbor, Lori, said, you've got to go with me to my yoga, you got to go to Guru Singh's class. And I thought, okay, okay. So I went and loved it. And at the end of the class, which I was met, a Kundalini in case Kundalini, anyone doesn't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Yoga West out in Los Angeles. And, um, I met him, he hugged me. And when he hugged me, I just felt like it was just this, I, I can't even explain it. It was love. Um, and for a love addict, I was like, I've got to have more of this. <laughs> no, but it was, it was the healthy kind of love. And right, right. And yeah. it was, oh, this is, this is the thing. Um, so I started not only going to his classes three times a week, but I also started meeting with him one-on-one. <clears throat> so I was in therapy and seeing Guru Singh. And the first session that I had with him I went in, I was feeling depressed. I was working in the magazine publishing industry, working in ad sales. And I told him how I was feeling and what I was going through. He looked right at me and he said, Jody, he said, you're depressed because you're not following your Dharma. And I said, what do you mean? What is that? Ooh. And he said, you are told. Be- you were told. <laughs> yeah, I was seriously told to stay. And he said, um, you are meant to be a helper. And he said, and until you until you do this, you will continue to be depressed. Wow. And so I listened to him because I enrolled in Chinese medicine school and (laughs) I thought, well, then I'm just going to go be an acupuncturist because that's the achiever in me. I'm going to go just go for the gold here. And, um, that was hard. Mm. And so I decided I didn't want to be in 
medical school for five years and I stayed in the magazine publishing business. Um, but for 20 years, I continued, you know, to follow him. And, you know, when I lived in New York, I had a big, it was a big blurry time for me. I didn't work one-on-one -on -one with him at all. But then once I left New York and started grad school, I started working with him again. And um, we were just talking recently about, can you believe that was 20 years ago? <laughs> and here I am. <laughs> but he, I look at him as the, I can't say the reason I am where I am in my life, but definitely he saw me. He was a mentor that planted yeah. a seed in you that, you know, and look, now you are a helper. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what you do. Yeah. And I knew for years, you know, even the nine years I was in New York struggling, I knew I wanted to go back to school and be a therapist. I just thought it was going to be too hard, too expensive, too time consuming. I was too old. I had all these reasons not to do it, you know. Um, well, but, and tell our listeners when you when you started going back to school because I, you and I have had this conversation before, and I've I found that pretty fascinating part of your story. Yeah, I was living in New York, just struggling. Um, you know, on the outside, it probably looked really shiny. You know, I had the West Village apartment. I um, had a job at a big magazine. I was on the masthead and had a expensive bag and all the stuff right. you know, that I thought was, <laughs> this is how it looks good, right? Everything looks good. And I was just falling apart. Um, and finally, literally 10 years ago, right now, I was sitting in my apartment on a Saturday night and it was cold. And so many winters I'd said, I'm not doing this again um, in New York. It's just too cold. And I can remember sitting there saying, I'm done. I'm just done with this. I had just been through a situation uh, with a major publication where I'd been severely sexually harassed, um, which really sent me and my self-esteem into the toilet. And it was not the right, the right place for me. I kept, I call it, I equate it to fitting in, trying to fit into a size six and a half Manola Blahnik when I needed a size seven and a half, you know, because <laughs> I could pull it off, but it was going to kill me. And so um, I was not living in alignment with my value system and I was continually depressed. I was getting into these toxic relationships um, and I just had this moment of clarity 10 years ago on a winter night and I said, I'm done, I'm just done. And I went to dinner with my friends and I told them I'm leaving New York, I'm gonna go to grad school, be a therapist. And I remember there were about six of us sitting around a table and they all just looked at me. <laughs> you're turning 40 and you're gonna do what <laughs> and so I just said yeah and I remember I didn't care I didn't care that I didn't get their approval it was this something inside of me saying it is time to get the hell out of here it's time to do this because I also was sitting in my apartment that night that I had that aha moment and said I'm turning 40 I don't want to be turning 50 sitting in this apartment feeling this way Mm -hmm. And that was really what helped me a lot, you know, and that's similar to what helped me when I quit drinking is I don't want to turn 60 and be feeling this way because 10 years goes really freaking fast. Yeah, it does. That's how, that's how future tripping can work for good. Right. Yes, right. Exactly. <laughs> because yeah. we're told not to future trip too much, right? Or that can be really um, um, sticky territory. But in this instance, I think that's really beautiful. Think about where do you want to see yourself in 10 mm -hmm. years? Do you want to be stuck? 
You know, yeah. I was stuck for sure. And it was around my forties. That's when I was figuring it out. But those birthdays in those early years were just like, I don't want more of this. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I want, but I know I don't want this. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so inspiring. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it was rough because I put everything in storage. Um, I rented out my apartment and I moved back to my hometown, uh, where I lived with my dad and my stepmom in the house where I grew up while I went to graduate school about 45 minutes north in Oklahoma. And I don't recommend that <laughs> to anybody, but, um, but you were willing to go to any links to change yes, that shit up. Yeah, that's right. I just yeah. stayed focused on the prize. I stacked up my hours and I got through graduate school in two years wow. and then I moved to Dallas and did my residency and then I moved to Austin. That is so inspiring. Jody. that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's an, it. it's, I look back on it and think, I actually did that. You know, even talking about yeah. it, I feel like I'm telling a story because... About somebody for, else. <laughs> exactly. Well, and for so long, I wanted to do it. That, you know, for 10 years, I wanted to do it. And now 10 years later, I'm looking back and going, oh, yeah, I did that. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we can do anything that we set our minds to. And I think that... Um, is becoming more of a reality for me as I am um, continuing on a sober path. Um, I didn't have it before. Uh, it sounds like you did. You know, you knew that you needed to go on that path and working with Guru Singh and knowing that your dharma was to help people. I think that that's kind of in the back of your mind, probably pushing you forward. But mm-hmm. like we can, I just no longer wanted to exist the way I was existing. And I feel super powerful now. Like I do feel like I can do anything. I just have to make sure I really want to do it. Careful what I wish for. Careful what I wish for now. Exactly. Yeah. What are you willing to, yeah. What are you willing to put time and energy towards? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's as opposed to just saying, oh yeah, I want that. I want that. I want that. But what are you willing to, what are you willing to put energy towards? What are you willing to give up so that you can put energy towards something? Right. That you want. Yeah. Those are all really important questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not easy. And that's one thing, you know, that I need to stress is that there were several times I thought about <laughs> quitting school and going back to New York and just going back to the magazine business because at least it was what I knew and I could, you know, it was scary. There was, it was uncertain and it was scary, but I just had to stay focused on, I can do this. I can get through this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, well, Jody, why don't you tell us then if somebody is looking to, uh, you know, address love addictions, say for instance, what's the difference between a therapist and a coach? If they're like looking to hire someone maybe, or looking to work, work with someone. So yeah, this is a, a good question and I want to find a fair way to answer it because um, I'm also a certified coach. The thing is, I think I had this fantasy of coaching through love addiction, like uh, being able to work with people while they're in their 90 days off, which means that people are, would need to be willing to take that 90 days off, um, which is challenging in itself. Because I think if I had had someone like a coach, I had a therapist during my 90 days, but if I had a coach, you know, someone who I could actually um, could give me more, uh, what do I want to say, structure through that time, mm-hmm. maybe? Set and goals, maybe? Is yeah, exactly. With goals? I, okay. Yeah, goals and maybe more daily check-ins and homework kind of thing, because the first couple of months of that, of that 90 days were 
really hard. I had a calendar on my refrigerator that I would mark days because it was just so, my obsessive thinking was so in gear, you know, that um, the first two months were just really hard. So my idea originally was <clears throat> I'd like to be a coach through those 90 days um, for love addiction. But the thing is, when you're working on this old stuff, the therapy part is so important, you know, and it, you need to work with a licensed therapist who's right. to do this with you. That's the right. thing. Right. Um, because this is some very painful stuff and it is a very vulnerable time. And to work with a therapist who has the tools to take you there to those, those times and those memories and know what to do once you're there to work with you. you know? Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, especially for people like me that are great at disassociation, I mean, there's a reason why that door is closed, you know, like, I don't know if I want to reopen it. Yeah. And you may not need to, you know, th that's the thing too, is that, um, everyone's different. So there are, there are clients who come in and, and they will tell me initially there's stuff that I don't want to talk about. Okay. And, and that's okay. Um, and then as time goes on, they, what I find eventually, but you have comfort and have rapport with this person, you know, with a therapist before you're ready to open up and go. I would Oh, trust the person that, that is, is going to be there with you and know what to do with you and all of this yeah. stuff once you open that door. And that you trust not to judge you. That's one of the things that um, I have, you know, I find as a client in therapy is that I still have fear of being judged and a, an ethical, a good therapist, a good licensed professional is not going to judge you, not even going to have a thought of judgment you know, mm -hmm. because, um, you know, for someone to come in and talk about their biggest shames, I mean, that's, that's, that's huge mm -hmm. and it's really important work. Um, so it's important, you know, if, I don't know if that answers your question about. It does. It does. I can see how both things like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I mean, I can see how I could see the benefits of each, each right. you know, professional and, you know, it, it, it may be even worth you know, ha ha having one and then doing it the other, maybe once I could see how, if somebody worked through all the emotional stuff and then they're ready yes. to, to, right. to go forward. Right. And that's it. I think is that with coaching, there's a, a readiness that needs to like a, okay, I'm, I'm ready to do this. It's I'm ready. I've done the work. I've done the emotional stuff. I'm ready to do the surface stuff. Now the, the, um, the exercise is more than the, the emotional part of it. Right. Um, you know, as a therapist, they said we can't work together. It's like everybody, right. has, a, everybody has a different um, time and level of readiness. And a, a, as a therapist, I, that's not for me to judge, you know, where mm -hmm. they are in their process. Um, you know, because everybody is different. Every single person is different and unique. So I, I think when you hit on that about trust, I mean, it's interesting. I've been in therapy or 
you know, 10, 11 years um, with my husband. And for seven of those years, I didn't tell the whole truth Mm -hmm. because I didn't trust um, the process. It wasn't that I didn't trust my therapist because I think I did. I didn't trust myself. Right. So that's the other part of like, if I'm, if you're going to go do this work, right. I don't, I don't advise waiting seven years to tell your therapist that you have a drinking problem, you know, because she's probably going like, yeah, I kind of figured that out along the way, probably. Um, but it was so slow moving. Um, she was building up that trust. We, we did other work along the way. So it was not all for naught. but gosh, if I could have just ripped off that bandaid and trusted myself that telling the truth would, would, would cause a shift in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also know that it happens the way that it happens too. I accept that. Um, but now it's like, I'm eager to do work. I'm eager to tell more of the truth. I'm eager to, um, jump in and be coachable, right? When you're, when you're coachable or teachable, so much good can happen. But you, if you're not mm, (laughs) the resistance, it's going to just keep you, it's going to keep you stuck. Yeah. Well, and imagine that seven years when you weren't sharing that information was there was shame attached to it, you know? And so, you know, we, we speak our shame and it dissipates. It's kind of like, as soon as we, for the most part, as soon as we put it out there in a safe place, you know, we can be vulnerable with our shame. It really can dissipate and it can really, it's freedom. Yeah. Hold on to something because it's, we think it's really shameful. And then we talk to someone who we can trust and we put it out there and it's like, Oh wow, that feels so much better. Mm-hmm. And after you do it, I mean, I, I am continuously surprised at what comes out of my mouth now. When I just admit to all the time to strangers, to people, to people I haven't seen in years. I mean, I just saw someone I new from my past. And I mean, I just like blurted out, oh yeah, I haven't had a drink in four and a half years. And you know, just like, <laughs> right. I mean, it just comes right out of my mouth. Yeah. Now. It's, it's part of you. It's more, you're more yeah. comfortable because it's just, yeah, the shame has dissipated. Right. Yeah, confidence too. Like you're confident in what you're doing. Right, Sandra? When you yeah. speak about it, it's like, yeah, this is, this, this is how it is. I'm Yeah. And I think it's, yeah, I think it's like once you experience being transparent and you start to feel that integration happening in your life, it's Mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, this feels so much better. I want more of this. Than hiding it all. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, going back to therapy and coaching is I consider, I know I am, I'm directive in my therapeutic approach. So I consider myself, I do coaching in my therapy practice too with therapy clients because um, I'm a, a goal, goal-oriented therapist. Um, and in other words, I don't sit back and just ask, oh, how does that make you feel? How do you feel about that? You know, mm-hmm. um, I really get in, engaged with my clients and, you know, we establish initially what are, what what are your values and what's happening in your life that doesn't go with these values? And it's, it's so eye-opening to clients um, to, to do a values assessment and realize, oh, these are my values, yet 
here I am operating from a totally different set of values that don't belong to me. Right, right. That is good work right mm -hmm. there. Well, and from a business perspective, I would think that that's probably not the smartest thing you could do as a therapist because there's an end point, I would think, yeah. it, you know, with your <laughs> yeah. clients. It's like, okay, we've reached it. You're done. Yeah, and I love that. I love yeah. That. And, um, you know, but I get, I don't advertise much and I get most of my clients are referrals from other clients. And so it, it works. You know? Yeah. You're doing it. You're doing it right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's all I want. I want people to feel better. I want to help people. And that's yeah. Well, real quick then Jody, before we move on to your three unruffled items, um, why don't you, I know you just launched a blog part of your website. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it's going to be so cool. I just yeah. read your first entry and it's amazing. Thank you. Yes, it's, it'll be a series. Um, it is called Journals of a Love Addict, Stories from the Bottom Shelf. And um, the premise is that I have a stack of journals, at least 10 journals. I'm looking at them right now. <laughs> and they span, um, I think, 20 years. There's a lot of stuff in there. I'm clearly missing a few journals. But um, I was, I found these journals when I was cleaning out my storage unit in New York City last summer. And I knew they were in there, but I hadn't looked at them in a really long time. And I was sitting in the storage unit last August and going through them and thinking, oh my gosh, I mean, I could just, the pain that I was going through and, and the relationships <clears throat> and the struggle and it's just riddled with love addiction, you know, just, um, self-loathing and lacking self-love and um so my blog will be snippets from journals and not only what i was dealing with but um you know how i how things are different now but it's also going to be educational so there's going to be uh, resources and information about love addiction um you know the goal is that if someone else could read this and say oh my gosh I can relate and thankfully I see I'm not crazy. It's not just me because that was what my, my feeling about myself was, is that I'm crazy and it must be me. It must be me with the problem. Um, I, I had no idea that this was a, a disorder, you know, that I was dealing with. Right. So. But now that you're, now that you're healthier, you mm -hmm. can see it with those eyes for yes. sure. Now I would, I would think though, that some of that vulnerability has to be kind of like cringe worthy. Like, Oh my God, I cannot tell anybody that I actually thought that and wrote it down. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I found that there are periods where I didn't write. For example, I got married. Um, I think I was 32 it's during the blurry time in New York, but I was married briefly and I didn't write on my wedding day. I didn't write on the day that he proposed. I didn't write. There was a whole time when I didn't write and it was similar things like that throughout life. And I, what I've realized the last couple of days as I've thought about this is that I was trying so hard to make it look like I'm okay, this is awesome, that I didn't wanna analyze it. I didn't wanna write about it in my journal because I didn't want to risk having it unfold on the page in front of me that I'm not okay, you know? I wanted so much to be okay. Um, 
self-protection. You were protecting yourself. uh, Yeah, exactly. That's my theory anyway, um, Mm -hmm. about why I didn't write about significant events in my life, which were supposed to be really happy, joyous events. I didn't write about them. Mm. Um, That's interesting that you say that. That makes me think about my own journals because I've always noticed that in the past, now I kind of journal all the time, but um, in the past, I tend to write when things were sad or painful. Um, that's when my journaling kind of amped up. <clears throat> and I always thought, oh, I guess because the other times I was just happy. But, I, you know, I know that I wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, in hindsight, I know that I wasn't. But it was probably, yes, I just didn't want to look at it. I didn't want to look at the reasons why. I was acting like everything was fine. Exactly. But, I, exactly. but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to look at that. Yeah. I, I think I was, during those point those times in life when you know I was supposed to be okay it's like everything's great here look I'm getting married isn't it awesome (laughs) I'm not going even though I was questioning it you know so much but I didn't want to write in my journal about it because I didn't I think I just didn't want to look at it wanted it all I wanted it to be okay I wanted to be okay you know Right. Well, do you have a day of the week uh, that you will be adding to the blog or is it? Okay. Every Monday. Every Monday. Mm -hmm. (gasps) People can listen to us and then they can go over and read Jody's Mm -hmm. blog on Mondays. I love it. Uh (laughs) Yes. And that's actually going back to um, Guru Singh. I met with him last November. I went out to LA on my birthday, actually. I met with him. And one of the things he told me is you are obligated to share your story because I told him about the journals and I knew I was going to write, I had planned on writing the blog, but he said, now that you have, you have shared this with me, you are obligated. You are obligated to put this out there. This is your work. This is your Wow. Work. That's heavy. I mean, that's an assignment. <laughs> I was like, okay, Guru Singh. I mean, I guess you can't really tell him. No, I don't think so. I know. I'm wrong about this. Damn it. <laughs> already did the work you wanted me to do now you want me to do more um but he's always right you know with me he's just he we have definitely butted heads I shouldn't say he's always right he's been wrong but um I I can feel it when he knows when I share something with him and he gets it and he gives it right back to me it's like yeah I know yeah you're right so Hmm. today when I heard him talking with Rich Roll on um, the guru's corner, he has them Hmm. on there and Rich had asked him a question like, you know, he was a, I guess he was a rock star. I didn't fully know that. And that he had hung out with Janis Joplin Mm -hmm. and Jimi Hendrix and the Grateful Dead. And Mm -hmm. Rich was talking to him about that and and about how, you know, he chose a different path and, and Guru Singh corrected him. And he said, I did not choose a different path. Um, It wasn't a choice. It was just what had to be done. Like it wasn't like a, a, he knew it from, from inside that, that, that was right. Was it like a business decision or anything right. like that? It was his Dharma, right? Yeah, and, it was his Dharma. And then he said, um, you know, Rich is like, well, we hung out with all these people. He's like, yeah, they're all dead. So it was just like, right. Right. Like, yeah, right. Right. yeah, my path is different. And it just maybe when I was listening to him in the car this morning and, and knowing I was going to chat with you and I just, I don't know. There's something so magical about the way he speaks and the way he um, delivers information in such a loving, open way. His emails blow my mind every morning. Mm-hmm. They come at six o'clock on the dot every morning, and they're that's how I start my day. And it's yeah, he's very profound, very very wise. Yeah, and part of what's in my journals too is I have a lot 
of notes from classes that I took mm-hmm. back then mm-hmm. in the 90s. Oh, that's cool. Also notes from my session, you know, things that he told me or shared mm-hmm. with me or my assignments, you know. And so that's, those are most likely going to show up in the blog too. So. I love it. Thank you. And that's like, a, a, um, I know that you're not doing the 12 steps right now, but that is part of what I think Sandra and I talk about by doing this podcast. It's like a service work. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's something that you do for free to help another person who might be struggling with the same thing that you're struggling with. Yeah. And um, for us, it was alcohol, but for you, it could be, you know, um, love addiction, alcohol, whatever that is, but we give it away for free. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. Because it was given to us. So I think that's really beautiful. I think that's really beautiful what you're doing. Thank you. Oh, Jody, I love talking to you, lady. <laughs> so glad we met. Me too. Me too. That is the power of Instagram doing good. <laughs> it's true. It's very yep. true. Mm-hmm. Well, Jody, this is the part of our show where we share, we're going to let you share in this instance, um, three things from your unruffled toolbox. These are things that can either be uh, creative, like writing, or, or things that help you in your recovery from whatever you're recovering from. Um, do you have three items to share yes. with our listeners? Yes. <clears throat> so uh, baking is something that I have a newfound love for in the last year. I love baking. I love reading recipes, planning ahead, baking. I love being in the kitchen and putting things together. I'm gluten-free and so is my boyfriend. And so experimenting with recipes and making them gluten-free and seeing how they turn out is also something that um, I find very creative. and I have big goals for things like that, you know. I love that. Well, I have to tell you about this. I made this gluten-free uh, Italian lemon almond cake mm-hmm. um, a couple of weeks ago, and it was delicious. So I, mm-hmm. there's one I found on it there. on Pinterest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And my goal is to make a pie, a gluten-free pie with a really awesome gluten-free crust, which with is a crust. Yeah. hard to find. Right. To make it flaky and good. Mm -hmm. Well, one more question. Do you watch the great British baking show? No, but I keep hearing about it. You should watch it. It's really fun. It's a fun show. Yeah. Yeah. My husband, um, he, he gets really, he can get really amped up during his work day. And he says that's like his, it's just his coming down. Like it's so meditative to him. Oh, Mark. I love him. I love your husband. That's what what someone else told me is that I can't remember who told me this now, but whoever told me about the show is that it's just a positive light in what's going, you know, it really is what's going on in today's world. There's the British baking show that, you know, shows you that, it's not so bad. <laughs> right, just throw some flour on it. It's going to be okay. There's another <laughs> tool. Or almond flour in your case. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Okay, what's your number two? Okay. Um, writing. <clears throat> and these are in, I shouldn't put them in any sort of order, but writing. Um, this is, the blog is obviously part of that, but I've been writing much more over the last year since I quit drinking and um, you know part of the reason I had so much good information in my journals is because I've always written um, and 
I'm just, I found writing again, I did Laura McCallan's The Bigger Yes a year ago. Mm -hmm. And through that, you know, she asks a lot of questions, you know, because to me, I'd already been through my bigger yes. You know, I left New York, I went to grad school, I became a therapist, that's my bigger yes. But I found that no, writing is actually underneath all of this. Writing started, I started writing when I was in second grade. I sat down and wrote a story. And, mm-hmm. and then I had a book that I was writing in third grade. And then I was in, on the school newspaper all through high school. And I was the editor of the high school newspaper. And I had a column in, the, in our hometown newspaper. And my whole trajectory was I was going to be a journalist. And then I remember the moment when I changed my direction was when I toured the writer's room at our local newspaper because I hadn't been down in this basement yet. (laughs) I'd always dropped off my article upstairs and I think someone said, hey, you should come down and meet the writers. And I went down in this basement. It was dark, windowless. There were middle-aged men scattered around the room. It reeked of cigarettes and stale coffee. Uh I looked at them and thought, oh oh no, Uh -uh. no, no, no. I want to live in New York or Chicago, or I want to live in a big city and I'm going to have to make money. And I don't know about, maybe people don't make money and I don't want to be in a dark, dank room. And so I, that's where I started to veer off my Dharma highway, I think, because Mm -hmm. I majored in advertising and I got into ad sales. I got into the ad sales side of the magazine instead of the writing side of the magazine. Which looked more glamorous maybe on the outside. Exactly. And so that is where I can almost pinpoint the moment where I said, huh, okay, maybe this isn't going to work. The writing isn't going to work. And I went for, um, I, I got off my values. You know, I started going towards operating from a different value system and I regretted it for a long, all throughout my ad sales career. I wished I would have stuck with journalism and so getting back in touch with that is what I'm here I am again I'm doing it so I love it that's a good one okay what's your number three (sighs) yoga um yoga is something that I started my first class was I think my 26th birthday um at yoga works in Santa Monica and I then started with Guru Singh and um, when I moved to New York, I studied with um, Alan Finger, who um, brought Ishta Yoga to America, and I got my teaching certification with him. And I never taught, but there was always something in the yogic philosophy and teachings that I gravitated towards. And so when I was in New York, once all the turmoil started and the self-medicating, I really just, uh, my yoga practice suffered. I mean, it just was non-existent. And, you know, I know now um, that that was also something that was missing. I didn't have a foundation and yoga was part of my foundation. Um, So not only was I not working with Guru Singh when I was in New York and I wasn't doing yoga and I was operating off my value system, so it's no wonder things were just falling apart. So now yoga, it, it's, I'm realizing that that has to be a part of my life, you know, because. Mm, right. It's it, your kind of non-negotiable thing. Yeah. 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 
Oh, so good. So good, Jody. Will you tell us, will you tell our listeners where they can find you? We will put your website in our show notes too, but um, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you? And do you do, uh, do you only see clients uh, person, uh, physically? I see clients, yes. Um, okay, so you don't do any sort of... So not yet. Now okay. I did last year, I did do my first live workshop, which okay. is called the hula hoop method. And I'm planning on doing that again this year. Um, so that there's, there will be more to come on that. And um, so there will be, there will be more opportunities to work with me outside of Texas. Um, right. I'll be, Got it. I'll be doing some online workshops. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, but, and you are at, yes. Uh, Instagram is Jody White LPC. Um, and it's Jody with an I, not yes, a Y. Yeah. Right. And my website is also jodywhitelpc.com. Jody, it was so nice to chat with you and hear your story today. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're Thanks. welcome. I can't and wait to meet you. I can't wait to meet you too. <laughs> Sandra, we got to get planning on that. Oh yeah. I yeah. know. I know. I I'm know. ready for another flight apparently. So <laughs> let's, okay, good. Yeah. let's work this out. <laughs> this is the year of flying for uh-huh. Tina. Yeah. Well, you know, Becky, Becky Vollmer is going to be here. And, oh, right. Right. And so Tammy, maybe. Oh. Well, she's staying the night at my house a couple of oh, nights okay. in March. Cause she's coming out here to Oakland. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It'll just depend on my school schedule, but I, I'm game for coming back to Austin. You guys got all that good, um, queso and, uh, uh-huh. and yeah, we got the cheese sauce, women. Uh-huh. got the cheese, mm-hmm. got the, got the, um, yeah, that's what I called it. The cheese, spicy cheese dip. <laughs> no, more of that. I was schooled on that. It's queso. <laughs> I'm never going to get that wrong again. <laughs> I look forward to meeting you, Jody, and thank you. I think our listeners are going to absolutely just love this episode. So thank you so much. I agree. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank y'all. Thank you. (gasps) Y'all, there it is. There it is. (laughs) Love y'all. Okay. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. The Unruffled Podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by Caitlin Schumacher. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designers Chris Aguirre and Amy Lanier. Thanks for listening.